How many people need a Bible? Raise your hand. We've got plenty if you need a Bible. Carlton needs a Bible right there. Anybody else need a Bible? If you don't have one, you're going to be lost. Deuteronomy chapter 1. What does the Andy Griffith show, I Love Lucy, Batman, and the Law of Moses have in common? Holy rerun, Batman. They've all been re-released. Well, the book of Deuteronomy is exactly that. It's a holy rerun. The word Deuteronomy literally means second law. The Greeks used it as a word to mean copy or duplicate. Deuteronomy was a refresher course on the law of Moses for the younger generation that was about to enter a new land. The Hebrews, those people that God had delivered from Egypt, had exited bondage. They were free, but they had never achieved the victory that God desired for them. They received God's law at Mount Sinai, but they failed to trust in God and to enter into the promised land. And as a result, a whole generation ended up buried in the wilderness. But now their children are camped by the banks of the Jordan River with another opportunity to trust and obey. A land of prosperity and bounty lies just ahead of them. But as they embark... God prepares them by repeating to them the same set of standards and instructions He gave to their fathers at Mount Sinai. Deuteronomy is in essence Exodus and Leviticus in numbers all sort of summarized and repackaged. The book begins, These are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel on this side of the Jordan in the wilderness in the plain opposite Zuf, between Paran, Tophel, Labam, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. These are all locations deep in the Sinai Peninsula, still near Mount Sinai. This was their starting point. And yet victory was just a few days away. We're told in verse 2, it is 11 days journey from Horeb, another name for Sinai, by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. After receiving the law of God at Mount Sinai, the first generation was just 11 days. Did you hear that? Just 11 days, less than two weeks, from victory, from blessing, from prosperity. I mean, they could taste the milk and the honey. But notice the jab in verse 3. Now it came to pass in the, what year? 40th year. They were 11 days away. Now we're in the 40th year. In the 11th month, on the first day of the month, that Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him as commandments to them. Now here they are 40 years later. The journey from Mount Sinai or Horeb to Kadesh Barnea normally took 11 days. Kadesh was a Canaanite border town, their gateway into the blessing of God. And yet 40 years later, the Hebrews were still on the wrong side of the Jordan, still on the outside looking in. Unbelief, notice that, it was unbelief that turned an 11-day trip into a 40-year death march. 
But when the first generation died off, the tide began to turn. And victories over the Amorite kings east of the Jordan set a stage for a new day in the life of Israel. He says, For after he had killed Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt in Heshbon, and Og of ba Be glad your parents didn't name you Og. <laughs> who dwelt at Azeroth in Idria, on this side of the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Remember, Moab was just west. You know what you might do tonight is flip back over into the back of your Bible to the maps there. It might help you out as you go through this. Moab was just west of the Dead Sea. It was right there along the Jordan River. This is where they've gotten. They haven't crossed over. They're in Moab. The first generation would have entered the Promised Land from the south, from Kadesh, their descendants, though, will cross over the Jordan and enter in from the east, from Moab. Well, in Moab, Moab, Moses renews the nation's marching orders, you might say. Moses began to explain this law, saying, The Lord our God spoke to us in Horeb. You have dwelt long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the mountains of the Amorites, to all the neighboring places in the plain, in the mountains and in the lowland, in the south and on the seacoast, to the land of the Canaanites, notice this, and to Lebanon as far as the great river, which is the river Euphrates. Notice this is the land that God promised Israel. It includes what is today most of the Middle East. Notice their boundaries. It includes Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, even Iraq to the river Euphrates. This is all the land that God has deeded to the Jews. And people quibble and complain about them taking the land that they currently possess. Their rightful land is much more. He says, See, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them and their descendants after them. Notice, the land belonged to the Hebrews, but they had to take possession. They had to rise up in faith and grab hold of all that God had given to them. Did you know that you too have to grab hold of what God has given to you? This is true of us. The joy of the Lord, the peace of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, the love of Jesus has been deeded to every single believer. But we don't always experience these blessings because we buckle under to fear like the Hebrews. Or we get distracted by the world and we don't reach out and grab hold of what God has for us. This is why we need faith. Moses says in verse 9, And I spoke to you at that time saying, I alone am not able to bear you. The Lord your God has multiplied you and here you are today as the stars of heaven in multitude. Numbers chapter 1 tells us that the nation that exited Egypt numbered 603,550 fighting men. That's males 20 years old and older. Add the women and children and the Hebrew nation probably numbered close to 3 million people. Well, Moses notes their vast numbers, verse 11. And may the Lord God of your fathers make you a thousand times more numerous than you are and bless you as he has promised you. But... How can I alone bear your problems and your burdens and your complaints? Moses is so thankful that God has numbered the people, has caused the people to grow, but he's the one in charge of their care. And this is simply too many people for him to attend to all their needs. 
It was Exodus chapter 18 that tells us that Moses' father-in-law was the one who came to the rescue. Remember Jethro? Not, not Jethro Bodine, but Jethro. Moses' father-in-law. He sat down and he had a long talk with Moses. And he told him that, hey, you're frustrated because you lack an important skill. You lack the skill of delegation. This is too much for you, Moses. And Jethro told Moses how he should sit down and he should divide the people up into smaller groups and put judges over each of the groups. And those that cases that were too hard for the judges to decide, then they could bring him, bring them back to Moses. But he needed to delegate some responsibility. You know, some of us are frustrated and agitated because we haven't learned the art of delegation. It's so important. Why, be frust- Why experience frustration when you, all you have to do is learn delegation? If a man, the stature of Moses, couldn't do it all, neither can you. When God surrounds a minister with able people willing to help, he needs to pass on, not hold on to the responsibility. Well, these next few verses recount what Moses did. And then in verse 19, Moses continues the history lesson. He wants this younger generation to learn from their parents' mistakes. He says, So we departed from Horeb and went through all that great and terrible wilderness which you saw on the way to the mountains of the Amorites as the Lord our God had commanded us. Now when these young guns, this younger generation, fought Zihon and Og, they walked up the Jordan River on the eastern bank. And that allowed them to look over the river at the bounty in the land, the land flowing with milk and honey, all of the blessings that they could have had 40 years earlier, but instead ended up growing up in a barren wilderness. And as they walked up the Jordan River and saw all this, they shook their heads and they wondered why their parents could be so stupid. Like some other young people that I know, they thought, how could my parents be so dumb? Hey, let me warn you, especially if you're a young a young gun, let me warn you, it's easy to criticize your parents, but it's much harder to rise above your parents. It's surprising how easy it is to repeat the same mistakes we loathe in our parents. Probably once a week or so, I look in the mirror and I say, that's my dad. Moses is warning the kids to rise above their parents, to not repeat the same mistakes, but to learn from their mistakes. I've always said, if my kids don't turn out a lot better than me, I will be greatly disappointed. I hope they have the same goal. Then we came to Kadesh Barnea. And in the next few verses, Moses recounts the story from Numbers chapter 13, when Moses sent 12 men to spy out the promised land. You remember this story. The spies returned with huge clusters of grapes. And in verse 25, we read their share. They share their report with Moses. It is a good land which the Lord our God is giving us. Indeed it was. But notice what happens in verse 26. Nevertheless, you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you complained in your tents and said, because the Lord hates us. He has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go up? 
Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. Moreover, we have seen the sons of Anakim there. And Numbers 13 actually refers to the sons of Anakim as giants. There are giants in the land. Then I said to you, do not be terrified or be afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you, he will fight for you. According to all he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son in all the way that you went until you came to this place. God carried Israel like a man carries his son. How does a man carry his son? He rides in piggyback. God gave Israel a piggyback ride. You remember what he did? He broke the wheel of Yul Brynner with ten miraculous plagues. And then he parted the Red Sea, even though that little twerpy Edward G. Robinson kept scoffing at Moses. And then God sent bread from heaven for them to eat. And he brought water from the rock for the people to drink. And God guided them supernaturally through the desert. He went before them in a cloud by day and with a fire by night. Verse 32 says, Yet for all that you did not believe the Lord your God who went in the way before you to search out a place for you to pitch your tents, to show you the way that you should go in the fire by night and in the cloud by day. God carried them piggyback. He put the nation Israel up on his shoulders and he carried them. And he planned to put them down in the land of Canaan had their faith not been overwhelmed with their fear. The plan of God was thwarted because of their unbelief. Fear is a dangerous thing. Fear will rob you of God's blessings. Being afraid to move, being content where you are, being afraid to risk it, it'll rob you. You need faith, not fear, to inherit the blessings that God has for you. He says, The Lord heard the sound of your words and was angry and took an oath, saying, Surely not one of these men of this evil generation shall see that good land of which I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh, he shall see it, and to him and his children I am giving the land on which he walked, because he wholly followed the Lord. Boy, Caleb was the one of the two spies who gave a good report. He was only one of two people among the first generation to survive and enter into the promised land, and it was because he believed, he trusted God. He wholly followed the Lord. And Moses mentions the other survivors well. The Lord was also angry with me, for your sake, saying, Even you shall not go in there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall go in there. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. Joshua also would live to see and enjoy the blessings of the promised land. Moreover, your little ones and your children, who you say will be victims, who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in there. To them I will give it, and they shall possess it. Isn't that interesting? You remember the first generation when they got to the promised land, they said, oh, we can't go in there. They'll kill off all our children. You know, all of our children will be slaughtered. The first generation worried about the giants slaughtering their kids. It was those kids because of their faith who ended up slaughtering the giants. But as for you, turn and take your journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. That was it for the first generation. 
They were sentenced to 40 years in the desert. Reminds me of that poem. Anybody ever heard that poem, Footprints in the Sand? Anybody ever heard that poem? Yeah, it's a, it's a moving poem. It's a man, he has this dream. He's walking down the beach. He sees two sets of footprints. And he realized that God has been walking by his side the whole time. But on occasion, during trials, during difficult moments, the man sees only one set of footprints. And the man asks God, he said, why did you leave me during these difficult times, these difficult moments? And God answers him and says, son, I didn't leave you. In fact, it was during the tough times that I carried you. And that's why you only saw one set of footprints. What a wonderful story. But that was not the story of the children of Israel in the wilderness. Here's their story. One night I had a wondrous dream. One set of footprints there was seen. The footprints of my precious Lord, but mine were not along the shore. But then some stranger prints appeared. And I asked the Lord, what have we here? Those prints are large and round and neat. But Lord, they are too big for feet. My child, he said in somber tones, for miles I carried you alone. I challenged you to walk in faith, but you refused and made me wait. You disobeyed, you would not grow. The walk of faith, you would not know. So I got tired, I got fed up, and there I dropped you on your rump. Because in life there comes a time when one must fight and one must climb, when one must rise and take a stand or leave their rump prints in the sand. Rump prints in the sand. That is exactly what happened to the first generation. God set them down on their rump. They wouldn't move. They wouldn't believe. They wouldn't trust the Lord. God demonstrated His faithfulness to them over and over and over. He carried them piggyback. And yet they refused to trust Him. And literally God dropped them in the sand. They died in the wilderness the rest of the chapter recounts the reaction of the Israelites when they realized that how they had missed their opportunity. They take up weapons. They go out to fight. Oh, now they're going to do it on their own. But the Lord is not with them. They go out on their own strength and they end up routed. And this is a warning not to repeat their parents' mistakes. All this was a warning. Learn from your parents. Don't do what they did. It's been said experience is the best teacher but why does it always happen to be your own experience? <laughs> a wise person learns from the experiences of others. Chapter 2, Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness of the way of the Red Sea, as the Lord spoke to me, and we skirted Mount Seir for many days. They skirted or they circled Mount Seir, which was a range of mountains south of the Dead Sea. Notice what he's saying. We went around in circles. For the next 40 years, they walk around through the wilderness in circles, skirting Mount Seir. Verse 3, And the Lord spoke to me, saying, You have skirted this mountain long enough. Turn northward. There does come a time, though, when God renews His promise, when He takes them off the shelf, and He decides to do something special with them again. Perhaps that's what God is saying to you tonight. Maybe your life's been going around in circles. Maybe you've been skirting Mount Seir long enough. Maybe tonight is your time to believe God and to trust Him 
and to really reach out with a hand of faith and grab hold of the blessings that he has deeded to you. Well, the second generation begins their march to the promised land, and they pass through the boundaries of three nations, Edom, Moab, and Ammon. And remember, all three of these nations were relatives of Israel. Edom, or Esau, was Israel, or Jacob's brother. Moab and Ammon were sons of Lot, who was Abraham's nephew. All three of these nations are related to Israel. And they occupy territory that God has given them. And so... God is going to instruct the Hebrews not to meddle, not to harass, not to battle with these three nations, but to purchase supplies from them to respect their territory. It is a gift from God to them to pass through. Verse 4, And command the people, saying, You are to pass through the territory of your brethren, the descendants of Esau, who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. Therefore watch yourselves carefully. Do not meddle with them. For I will not give you any of their land, no, not so much as one footstep, because I've given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You shall buy food from them with money that you may eat, and you shall also buy water from them with money that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hand. He knows you're trudging through this great wilderness. These 40 years the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. It is amazing that for those 40 years... God was faithful to these people. Notice they lacked nothing. Not one night in 40 years did they ever go to bed hungry. Not one day in 40 years did they ever lay down thirsty. In fact, chapter 8, verse 4 of Deuteronomy tells us that for four decades, the clothes that the Hebrews wore in the wilderness didn't wear out. My son goes through a pair of shoes in three months. But I mean, for four decades, their clothes refused to wear out. Their feet never swelled. I don't know if that's the right tense. Swell, swollen. Their feet never got swollen. The whole time they walked through the wilderness, God provided for them. Imagine the population of metropolitan Atlanta trudging through the desert. Do you think we'd have any problems? Hey, the same number of people, and yet God provided their needs proof of God's faithfulness. Well, in verse 8, And when we passed beyond our brethren, the descendants of Esau, who dwelt in Seir, away from the road of the plain, away from Eloth and Ezean Gebir, we turned and passed by the wilderness of Moab. Then the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab, nor contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land as a possession, because I have given Ar to the descendants of Lot as a possession. The Emim had dwelt there in times past, a people as great and numerous and tall as the Anakim. They were also regarded as giants, like the Anakim, but the Moabites called them Emim. That's an interesting bit of information. The Horites formerly dwelt in Seir, but the descendants of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and dwelt in their place, just as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave them. Now rise and cross over the valley of Zered. So we crossed over the valley of Zered, and the time we took to come from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed over the valley of Zered was 38 years. 
until all the generation of the men of war was consumed from the midst of the camp, just as the Lord had sworn to them. For indeed, the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the midst of the camp until they were consumed. So it was when all the men of war had finally perished from among the people that the Lord spoke to me, saying, This day you are to cross over at Ar, the boundary of Moab, and when you come near the people of Ammon, another nation, protected nation, do not harass them or meddle with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession. You get the message here, God is saying, take what you're supposed to take. Don't take what, you're not supposed, what doesn't belong to you. Keep your hands to yourself. That's good, good wisdom. Because I have given it to, to the descendants of Lot as a possession. That was also regarded as a land of giants. Giants formerly dwelt there, but the Ammonites called them Zamzumim, a people as great and numerous and tall as the Anakim. But the Lord destroyed them from before them, and they dispossessed them and dwelt in their place just as he had done for the descendants of Esau who dwelt in Seir when he destroyed the Horites from before them. They dispossessed them and dwelt in their place even to this day. And the Avim who dwelt in the villages as far as Gaza, the Kaphtorim who came from Kaphtor destroyed them and dwelt in their place. They were some pre-Philistine people. Notice though throughout this passage there's some names for these giants. They keep coming up. Five names for the giants. Sometimes they're called Nephilim. Sometimes they're called Rephaim, Hebrew words. Sometimes they're called Anakim. Sometimes they're called Emim. Sometimes they're called Zamzumim. They're all giants. We'll talk about them in a minute. Now, what's happening here is Israel is tiptoeing through the tulips. God is telling them to avoid any conflicts with Edom and Moab and Ammon. They're coming up toward the land. They're coming through these territories. They're now about to position themselves just west of the, or just east of the Jordan River where they can cross over. Notice what happens, verse 24. So far, you know, they're just sort of tiptoeing. They're, they're trying to keep friendships. That's not really a good training for an invading army. When are they going to fight? Well, it happens in verse 24. He says, Rise, take your journey, and cross over the river Arnon. Look, I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to possess it and engage him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the nations under the whole heaven who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. The time has come to fight. The Arnon was a river that ran from the mountains of Moab into the Dead Sea. But for the Israelites, it was a turning point. It was a moment of decision. When they crossed that Arnon River, they went from being a band of wanderers to possessors and occupiers and victors. Let me encourage you tonight to cross over the Arnon, to stop wandering, to stop drifting spiritually, to stop traveling in circles and make a determination in your heart tonight that you're going to be serious about your commitment to Jesus, that you're going to wholly follow the Lord, that you're going to stop settling for less than God's best. Tonight, you're going to be a victor. You're going to trust God to make tonight a turning point in your life. Well, verse 26 says, And I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedemoth to Zihon, king of Heshbon, with words of peace, saying, 
Let me pass through your land. I will keep strictly to the road, and I will turn neither to the right nor to the left. You shall sell me food for money that I may eat, and give me water for money that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot, just as the descendants of Esau who dwelt in Seir and the Moabites who dwelt in Ar did for me, until I cross the Jordan to the land which the Lord our God is giving us. Again, he asked for safe passage. But Sihon, king of Heshbon, would not let us pass through. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might deliver him into your hand as it is this day. And the Lord said to me, See, I have begun to give Zihon and his land over to you. Begin to possess it, that you may inherit his land. Then Zihon and all his people came out against us to fight at Jahaz. And the Lord our God delivered him over to us, so we defeated him, his sons, and all his people. We took all his cities at that time, and we utterly destroyed the men, women, and little ones of every city. We left none remaining. We took only the livestock as plunder for ourselves with the spoil of the cities which we took. Wow. Here we read that the Hebrews destroyed not just the fighting men, but the women and the children, and we wonder, why so barbaric? Why so cruel? Now remember, these were Canaanites. These were people that were steeped, I mean immersed, in evil and occult and wicked practices. There is a theory that suggests that the giants in the land were sort of a freakish race of people. They were the results of demons taking over the bodies of men and impregnating women, producing this strange, freakish race of humanoids. Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, there's some biblical basis for this, seems to imply that this also happened before the flood, the flood of Noah. And it, it was because of this pollution of the human race that God destroyed all of mankind. He had to wipe it out to start over. And he started over with Noah and his family. It could be that this kind of perversion was going on in the land of Canaan at that time. Which necessitated the wiping out of the whole community of people. You say, how strange. You know, what are you suggesting? Why would, why would demons, you know, have that kind of fraternizing with, with humans? It is interesting, though, that the highest experience in the occult is sex with a demon. It's true. The offspring is called a moon child. You might have heard that term. What's amazing to me is that this has now become a favorite Hollywood theme. In 1968, there was a movie out called Rosemary's Baby. Some of you might have remembered it. It was based on this concept. More recently, did you see the movie Michael starring John Travolta? John Travolta played a lust-filled angel whose main desire was to hit on beautiful women. I'm telling you, this stuff is demonic. And it's not too, what we see in the movies today is not too far from what we read about in our Bibles. Canaanite culture was up to its eyeballs in devilish and perverted practices. And that's why the killing of these Canaanite children may have been an act of God's mercy. 
especially when you realize the evil influences they were subjected to living in that wicked society. Well, verse 36 describes the extent of the victory. From or, or, or I can't say that word. What was it? You can't say it either, can you? Which is on the bank of the river Arnon, and from the city that is in the ravine, as far as Gilead, there was not one city too strong for us. The Lord our God delivered all to us. Only you did not go near the land of the people of Ammon, anywhere along the river Jabbok, or to the cities of the mountains, or wherever the Lord our God had forbidden us. Notice with this victory over Sihon, Israel is gaining momentum. Chapter 3. Then we turned and went up the road to Bashan, and Og, oh Og, king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Idria. Idria was east of the Jordan River, southeast of the Sea of Galilee. In verse 2, Moses continues, And the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have delivered him and all his people and his land into your hand. Could it be God saying that to you tonight? The thing that you're fearing, the thing that you're dreading. Could it be that God is saying to you, don't fear that. I've already delivered them into your hand. I've already gone before you. I've already solved that problem. Why are you afraid? He said, you shall do to him as you did to Zion, king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon. So the Lord our God also delivered into our hands Og, king of Bashan, with all his people, and we attacked him until we had no survivors remaining, and we took all his cities at that time. There was not a city which we did not take from them, 60 cities, all the region of Argob, the, king of Og in, the kingdom of Og in Bashan. All these cities were fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, and besides a great many rural towns. And we utterly destroyed them as we did to Zihon, king of Heshbon, utterly destroying the men, women, and the children of every city. But all the livestock and the spoil of the cities, we took as booty for ourselves. Now verses 8 through 10 outline the land that was taken in the victories over Sihon and Og. It was all territory east of the Jordan River. And notice the detail. This is a fascinating detail in verse 11. For only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of the giants. Indeed, his bedstead was an iron bedstead. Is it not in Rabbah of the people of Ammon? I mean, he, he had a world-famous bed he slept on. Nine cubits is its length. And four cubits its width, according to the standard cubit. King Og was one of the last of these remaining giants. We don't know how big he was, but if his bed is any indication, Og was a hog. Get a load of this bed. Nine cubits is 13 and a half feet long. Four cubits is six feet wide. King Og slept on a bed 13 and a half feet long by six feet wide. You ready? Now that's a king size bed. <laughs> I've been waiting all night for that. Verses 12 through 20 recall the deal that Moses made with the two and a half tribes that wanted to settle east of the Jordan River. 
Moses was concerned that some of those tribes would stay east of the river and leave their brothers to fight for the promised land by themselves. You remember Moses deeded the two and a half tribes the land only after they had vowed to go with their brothers and fight. And so he marks out their boundaries here for these two and a half tribes in the following verses. Skip down to verse 21. Moses says, And I commanded Joshua at that time, saying, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms through which you pass. In other words, what had happened east of the Jordan will happen on the west bank if Israel continues to walk by faith. And Moses encourages his successor. He says, You must not fear them, for the Lord your God himself fights for you. If there's a theme tonight, boy... We need more faith and less fear, right? The key to victory is is not necessarily more fight, but more faith. Verse 23, Then I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do anything like your works and your mighty deeds? Now, what an amazing statement. This blows my mind. And from a man like Moses... Moses saw miracles we have a difficult time even imagining. You remember, Moses looks and there's a bush that burns but is not consumed. He throws down his rod and it turns into a snake and then it eats up the other snakes that Pharaoh had produced. Moses holds out his rod and the Nile River turns to blood. Darkness covers Egypt for three days at his command. The Red Sea splits in half. Food falls from heaven with the morning dew. Water pours from a rock once he strikes it. The ground opens up and swallows up all of the rebels. Can you imagine? I mean, this man saw miracles. Yet Moses says, O Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. All that Moses saw, he knew, was just the beginning, just the tip of the iceberg. God was just getting started with his miracles. Boy, this is a good attitude to have, no matter what God's done in the past. It's just the beginning of what God wants to do, of the great things he wants to show. That's true of us. And remember, it was in the midst of one of those miracles that Moses forfeited his privilege of entering the promised land. You remember how he disobeyed God at the waters of Meribah? He blew his cool and he misrepresented God as being mad with the people. Now on that day, God worked a miracle. God brought water from a rock. But in Moses' anger, he struck the rock when God told him to merely speak to the rock. And as a result of the leader misrepresenting God, God said that Moses would not be allowed to enter the promised land. Hey, when you stand up to represent God, it's serious business. Make sure you represent him appropriately. But Moses had gone a long way with these people. (laughs) And I mean, now they're right there on the bank. After 40 years, they're almost there. They're getting close to their goal. He can taste the milk. He can smell the honey. I mean, oh, Lord, let me enter the land that I've longed for for so long. And so in verse 25, Moses prays, let me cross over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, those pleasant mountains in Lebanon. 
But the Lord was angry with me on your account and would not listen to me. So the Lord said to me, enough of that. Speak no more to me of this matter. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift your eyes toward the west, the north, the south, and the east. Behold it with your eyes, for you shall not cross over this Jordan. Misrepresenting God is serious business. God does answer half of Moses' prayer. He allows him to see the land, but he won't enter. And God sends Moses to Mount Pisgah. Pisgah was probably the mountain range east of the Dead Sea. Mount Nebo was its tallest peak. The mountain sits 2,600 feet above the Dead Sea, opposite where the Jordan River feeds into the Dead Sea. And when you stand on the top, one, one day when we get over to Israel, we'll go to the top of Mount Pisgah. That would be fun. But the summit offers a panoramic view of the interior of Israel. In fact, you can say, they say from the top of Mount Pisgah, you can actually see the rooftops of Bethlehem in, Judea, in Jerusalem, you know, miles inland. So it's quite a, quite a place to, to be. Moses goes there. He's allowed to see the land. But God tells him in verse 28, But command Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him. For he shall go over before this people, and he shall cause them to inherit the land which you will see. And so we stayed in the valley opposite Beth Peor, there near Mount Pisgah. In chapter 4, Moses encourages the second generation, and he establishes an important principle for us. He says, Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live. And go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you. Notice this. You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take anything from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Don't add to, don't take away from God's word. Let the Bible speak for itself. You see, the human tendency is to either water down or to make something harder than God intended. The liberal waters it down. The legalist tries to beef it up and add to it. Both are wrong. Let the Word of God speak for itself. What God has said, He said. Don't add anything to it. Don't take anything from it. He says, Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Bel Peor. For the Lord your God has destroyed from among you all the men who followed Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. You remember Bel Peor was when Balaam led the Israelites into adultery and idolatry. It was a terrible moment. And in that judgment, 23,000 Hebrews fell afterwards. Verse 5, Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore, be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us, for whatever reason we may call upon Him? And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you this day? In other words, he's saying, this law that I'm giving you is special. It will set you apart. No other nation has anything like this law. 
You know, the law of Moses is the most advanced legal and moral code ever composed. Today, 3,500 years later, the ethical and legal framework of Western civilization rests on the foundation of the law of Moses and the Ten Commandments. It was brilliant. And thus, Israel had two characteristics that made it special among the nations, unique among the nations. It had access to God and instruction from God. And as a result, it was God's plan to use the Hebrews as a witness to the nation. Israel was to be God's lighthouse. But God tells them, Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. I hope you hear that. It's difficult to grasp how Israel could have witnessed all these miracles that they witnessed. I mean, Israel received commandments that were written with the finger of God. How could they possibly forget these things? Yet they did. It's impossible to understand how they could forget these things so easily until you have kids. <laughs> and you parents know that you can give your kids instructions one minute, make certain that they understand what you mean, and then 15 minutes later, they've developed an amazing case of Alzheimer's. You know that's true. Mom, I forgot. One of the key words in the book of Deuteronomy is the word remember. It appears 14 times in this book. This is why God spends these first four chapters of Deuteronomy retelling the story of Israel. For it is every generation's responsibility to remember God, His truths, and the lessons that He's taught previous generations. Did you get that? It's every generation's responsibility to remember. God goes to tremendous lengths to teach human beings lessons that they forget overnight. One of the primary reasons for the book of Deuteronomy is our responsibility to remember. A good memory is a key to discipleship. And not only do we need to remember God's statutes, Moses says, and teach them to your children and to your grandchildren. And if you don't know them yourself, guys, how can you teach them to your kids and your grandkids? Especially concerning the day you stood before the Lord your God in Horeb, when the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, and I will let them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. Then you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the midst of heaven, with darkness cloud and thick darkness. And the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words, but saw no form. You only heard a voice. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might observe them in the land which you cross over to possess. Notice what God is saying. He wants us teaching our kids the commandments that he wrote with his own hand. He wants you teaching your kids his top ten list. The ten commandments are the very thing that God says he wants us to teach our kids. 
And yet, sadly, we can't even hang them on the walls of our public school classrooms. Friday night, I was studying this passage. And at that moment, Nick walked into the room. And I decided to put my parenting to the test. And to see how good I had been at teaching the Ten Commandments. And so I asked him, I said, son, can you name the Ten Commandments? I mean, if, God, if this is what God wants you to do with your kids, I figure, how am I doing? And so he started out, and he got about five right off the bat. Then he got another two, and he made it all the way to nine. We forgot the Sabbath day to keep it holy. I mean, I thought at midnight on a Friday night, 18 years old, senior in high school, get it nine out of ten. I thought that was great. But let me dare you to go home tonight and ask your kids to name the Ten Commandments. Let me do something else. Let me dare you to ask yourself if you know the Ten Commandments. <laughs> hey, we need these non-negotiables in our lives. This is what Ten Commandments are. They're non-negotiables. They're things we've settled in advance. We need the Ten Commandments. This is what lays down an ethical foundation in a person's life. I love it that the Hudsons on their soccer team, before every soccer game, they say the Lord's Prayer. You ought to also say the Ten Commandments. You know that. Okay, do the ten, did the Lord's Prayer last season. You do the Ten Commandments this season. Just do. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Moses continues, Take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form from the Lord when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any beast that is on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. And take heed lest you lift your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the host of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. In other words, don't worship the creation instead of the creator. God's glory is revealed in nature, but God's glory always transcends nature. And notice that expression that God uses in verse 19. Notice, he says, when you feel driven to worship. You remember what we talked about this morning? Human beings are worshipers by nature. God programs it into every human heart, the drive to worship something. For some people, the temptation is the sun, the moon, and the stars. For other people, it's the car, the house, and the starlet. But since we're physical creatures, we're prone to worship physical things. This is why God tells us to resist that urge to worship the creation, but instead worship the Creator. Verse 20, But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be His people and inheritance as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me for your sakes, and swore that I would not cross over the Jordan, and that I would not enter the good land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. But I must die in this land. I must not, not cross over the Jordan, but you shall cross over and possess that good land. 
Take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of anything which the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Remember this danger. To, the danger is to forget. When you begat children and grandchildren and have grown old in the land, act corruptly and make a carved image in the form of anything and do evil in the sight of the Lord your God to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you will soon utterly perish from the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. You will not prolong your days in it, but will be utterly destroyed and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods, the work of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But you, but from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things come upon you in the latter days, when you turn to the Lord your God and obey his voice, for the Lord your God is a merciful God, he will not forsake you nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant of your fathers which he swore to them. I mean, Moses is now speaking prophetically of Israel's future, of what will happen to her in the days and years and centuries to come. For ask now concerning the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that, the God, that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether any great thing like this has happened or anything like it has been heard. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you heard and lived? Or did God ever try to go and take for himself a nation from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and by great terrors according to all that the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? I mean, Israel was uniquely chosen by God. No other nation received such direct revelation. Even today, Israel holds a special place in the plan of God. And this should make us feel so special and so important because Romans 11 teaches us that we have been grafted in to the blessings that God intended for Israel. That we too are children of Abraham and we have become recipients of this very personal and intimate access to God and revelation from God. It's now been given to us in Christ Jesus. He says, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord Himself is God, there is none other besides him. Out of heaven he will he let you hear his voice that he might instruct you. On earth he showed you his great fire and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them. And he brought you out of Egypt with his presence, with his mighty power, driving out from before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in to give you their land as an inheritance as it is this day. Therefore, know this day and consider it in your heart that the Lord himself is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. You shall therefore keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Notice the duration of God's promises to Israel. For how long? For all time. God isn't through with the Jews. They are still His special people for all time. 
In verses 41 through 43, Moses establishes three cities of refuge on the east side of the Jordan. We talked about that in Numbers 35. And then the rest of the chapter summarizes Moses' brief history lesson here. And there we have chapter 4. And I was 45 seconds over. My apologies. Father, thanks for your love for us. Thanks for your blessing. Thanks for a time, Lord, of just immersing ourselves in your word. So many truths here, so many rich treasures. Help us, Lord, to remember, to remember both your works of old, your works in the life of the nation Israel, but also, Lord, help us to remember the day we were saved, the way you convicted us, the way you gave us peace. Help us remember how you've used us in the past. Help us remember those expressions of love you've shown us. And help us to remember all the blessings that you've poured out upon us. Help us not forget, but help us to be grateful and to walk in your ways and to do your commandments. We love you, Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said...